It has taken us over a year to get to this point. Since Jerome and I trade off our, in our preaching, so I preach half the time, but it's taken over a year just to get to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> but we are entering on holy ground. I mean, all of the Bible is holy ground, but there is something special about this chapter. Christians have confessed this throughout the centuries, that when you come to this chapter, you're, you're really treading upon holy ground. So I pray that we get a lot out of it. That the Lord meets us here and transforms us through Okay, let's go ahead and read. We're going to be studying verses 1 to 4 today. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did it, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And now, Spirit of God, we ask for you to come and be the one who teaches and opens eyes and gives enlightenment and gives us a heart to obey your word and causes us to thrill with the truths that we're going to see in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. As we have been seeing as we've been going through the book of Romans, Romans really is Paul's exposition of the gospel. We know that because the theme of the entire letter is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he says there, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So what is he saying? He's saying that the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God that is given to anyone who believes upon the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the revelation of how a sinner can be right with a holy God. God does not compromise his holiness, and yet still there can be this reconciliation between a condemned sinner and a holy God. They come together in unity and peace. So, the doctrine of justification by faith is central to this book. That's what Romans 117 says. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel through faith. So, the justification by faith is the teaching that God imputes to the one who believes in Christ his very own righteousness. So that now he is, as it were, clothed with. Picture a... Picture a beggar out on the streets with tattered and filthy clothes and somebody comes along with a beautiful new mink coat and just puts it over and it covers all of those tattered, filthy garments and now they're clothed with something beautiful. What it's like to become a Christian? God clothes you in his own righteousness. And in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, Paul has been hammering away at this doctrine of justification. In chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, he tells us how everybody needs it. He talks about how the heathen needs it, and then the Hebrew, and then the whole world. And then in 
chapter 3, verse 21 to 31, he explains the gospel. He tells us that it's by grace, and it comes through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And it comes through the propitiating work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he turns away God's wrath. And then in chapter 4, he gives us an Old Testament illustration of someone who was justified. Abraham, one of the great patriarch of the Jewish nation. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he gives us the fruits of justification. We have peace with God. We have access into his grace by which we stand. We have joy in tribulations. We exult in God. All of these fruits flow out of our standing of justified state. And then in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, he gives us the ground of justification. The ground of our justification is our union to Jesus Christ. We're no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. And because we're in Christ, his very righteousness now is applied to us. It's kind of like when a poor woman marries an incredibly wealthy man. The very moment that they're pronounced man and wife, legally, all of his wealth, all of his assets now become hers because of the union. And we have been united to Christ so that his assets, his resources, his spiritual riches now become ours. So, summed up that way, Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are all about justification by faith. But then we have chapters 6 and 7. And chapters 6 and 7 are like little rabbit trails that Paul goes off. It's a paragraph or a parenthesis in his argument. What he's doing is... He's dealing with objections that would come into the minds of people that hear him preaching about this free grace, this justification by faith. And so chapters 6 and 7 deal with objections, questions that people have. Like, well, like chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? Or chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Or chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Or chapter 7, verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? So he's dealing with these questions and answering these questions. But by the time he gets to chapter 8, he's done answering the questions. He's done with the objections. And he's coming back to the very same point he left in chapter 5 which is justification by faith. You guys do understand what I'm saying, don't you, when I talk about justification? God declares you righteous on account of Christ's righteousness. So when we come to chapter 8, we're just getting back to the same subject that he left off at the end of chapter 5. Let's look at what he left off with at the end of chapter 5. Romans 5.18 So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we are back to the main subject of the letter how the gospel reveals a right standing between sinner and God through the work of Jesus Christ. And as we go through verses 1 to 4, I want you to see three basic themes emerge. Number one, the justification of the sinner in verses 1 and 2. 
Secondly, the propitiation of the Savior in verse 3. And number three, the sanctification of the saint in verse 4. So we're going to be looking at justification of the sinner, the propitiation of the Savior, and the sanctification of the saint. They're all here packed in these four verses. So number one, the justification of the sinner. Verse 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now let's ask some basic questions from this text. First of all, what does it mean to be justified? From verse 1. There are two words there. If you pull them out, that's the heart and soul of justification. You see the two words? No condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is that the person who has been justified has been acquitted by the judge of heaven and earth. He has been released from any debt to the law that he owes. And there is no higher court than his. There's no court of appeals that, you know, if, if God says you are justified, there's no other court of appeals that someone could say, wait a minute, wait a minute, he shouldn't be justified. I'm going to appeal to this source or that source. God is the highest source. And once God justifies someone, there's no reversal. It cannot be overturned. Satan cannot overturn it. No other person accusing you can overturn God's decision. And I say it reverently, but even you can't overturn it. Because God won't allow it to be overturned. There, he puts safeguards in check. This isn't, I'm not saying that you can go off and live the rest of your life in sin and expect to be justified. But I'm saying that if you are justified, the Spirit of God is at work in you and will continue to work in you throughout your life, keeping you in Christ. Amen. So, what does it mean to be justified? It means that you are not condemned. Amen. Instead, you have his own righteousness put to your account. Second question, why are we justified? Well, look at the first word of verse 1. Therefore. Now, the word therefore tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you that he's coming to a conclusion based on something that he's already said. Paul has been building an argument and now he's coming to the climax where he's going to give his conclusion to the argument he's been making. And his conclusion is, therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what therefore means we have to go back to something he's already been saying to get his argument. So where does he make this argument that would lead to the conclusion that we're not condemned? It cannot be chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. Because those verses tell us that we are condemned by the law because we can't keep it and we keep failing at it and we're wretched. So I don't believe that he's appealing to chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. But if you go back to chapter 7, verses 4 and 6, you will see a strong basis for the conclusion that he draws in chapter 8, verse 1. So let's go back to chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6. 
But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now right after that, he's going to go off on two bunny trails for the rest of chapter 7. But he comes back to the ideas that he's just told us in verse 4 and verse 6 and concludes through those two verses that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 4 says, we died to the law. Verse 6 says, we have been released from the law. Now if we died to the law, and if we've been released from the law, that means that the law can no longer have jurisdiction over us to condemn us. Because we died to it. It's got nothing to say to us anymore. We are not under the law. We're under grace. We're not in Adam. We're in Christ. When Christ died to the law, so did we. Because we are in him and we're united to him. It's like a wife who's married to an extremely harsh and cruel and demanding husband. And she wants to be free from him. But she doesn't know how. She knows she can't divorce him because that's not lawful. But then she has a heart attack and dies. And all of a sudden she finds out she's released from her husband. Her husband there's nothing her husband can do to her anymore. There's nothing he can say to her anymore because death has broken the bonds that united them together. And the Bible says we died in Christ to the law. So the law no longer has jurisdiction over us. It cannot condemn you because you've been released from it. You died to it in Christ. So that's why we're justified. Because we've been released from the law. We've died to it. Now when are we justified? Look back at chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That echoes what Paul said in chapter 7, verse 6. Well, verse 5 says, While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now. He's making a distinction between the old life and the new life. There's been a radical change that has taken place. And when is a person taken away from that con condemned status under the law. It's when they go from being in Adam to being in Christ Jesus. Because he says here, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The moment you're united to Christ, your status changes from guilty to innocent, from condemned to righteous. Because you are brought together and connected to and united to the Son of God, and His righteousness, righteousness is now yours, and it covers you. So, you must be in Christ Jesus. Every person in the world is either in the flesh or in Christ. Romans 7.5 says some people are in the flesh. Romans 8.1 says some people are in Christ. That's every person. Every person you see, every all the people you drive down next to and you see at work and you go to school with and all of your neighbors, everybody in this world can be split into either in the flesh or in Christ Jesus. So the only thing that really matters at the end of the day is are you in Christ? 
It doesn't matter how religious you are, how moral you are, how devout you are. You can be an extremely devout Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Jew, but if you're not in Christ, you're lost. Amen. At the end of the day, you must be found in Christ to have his righteousness. How are we justified? Well, that is given to us in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, there's two phrases here that we have to understand if we're going to understand verse 2. The first phrase is the law of sin and of death. And there's two different ways expositors understand that. Some of them go back to chapter 7, verse 23. And there it says, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So they say that the law of sin and death is the same thing as the law of sin, which is in my members. Meaning... They say that verse 2 means that God has set us free from the power of sin in our life. So that we're no longer uh, in bondage to the law of sin, which is in our members. So we've been set free from the law of sin and of death. But there's two reasons why I don't believe that can be the correct interpretation. Number one, how does verse 2 begin? Four. What does it tell you when you read the word four? He's explaining what he just said in verse 1, right? He's giving explanation for what he's just said in verse 1. If verse 2 means that God has set us free from the power of sin, that would mean that we're not under condemnation because God is sanctifying us. But that doesn't make any sense. That's putting the cart before the horse. It's not true that we are justified because God is sanctifying us. What is true is that God first justifies us, and then we begin to be sanctified. Our, our justification is not based on our sanctification. But that's what we would have to understand it if we understand the law of sin and death to be the power of sin in our life. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. So, so if it doesn't mean that, um, what can it mean? I told you there were two reasons for that, but I'm, I was wrong. There's only one. That's my reason. <laughs> well, I will, I will give you another. Um, if, if the law of sin and of death does not mean that we've been set free from the power of sin, what is this law of sin and death that he's talking about? I believe it's the same thing that he meant by the law all through chapter 7. All the way through chapter 7 when Paul talks about the law. Well, I'll give you an example. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now what does the law refer to there? God's law. Right? The moral law that was encapsulated in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Because thou shalt not covet is the Tenth Commandment. I believe that the law of sin and of death is that same law when we come to chapter 8, verse 2. And I believe that because in verse 5, this is awfully technical, I know, but try to stick with me. In verse 5, Paul links 
the law with sin and death. He says, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. He mentions sinful passions and death in connection to the law. And that's why he goes off and answers two questions at the end of chapter 7. Is the law sin? No. It exposes sin, reveals sin, stirs up sinful passions, but it's holy, just, and good. Is the law the cause of death? Well, not really. It's the instrument, but the really the real cause of my death is my own sin. That's verses 13 to 25. But Paul has linked God's law with sin and death in chapter 7. The law exposes sin, and it produces our death. So it's no wonder to me that in chapter 8, verse 2, he can call this law the law of sin and of death. Now, if that's correct, let's read it again. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the Old Testament moral law encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. That's what he would be meaning if I'm on the right track. But there's another phrase that we have to understand, and that's the phrase, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What in the world does that mean? Romans 8 is not always easy to follow. So, what does he mean by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? I believe he means exactly what he said in chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that we might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You see parallels between 7, 4, and 8, 2? In 8.2 he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. When a person is born again, the Holy Spirit unites that person to Jesus Christ. Romans 7.4 says that we were joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. So we are joined to the resurrected Christ. And now that we're joined to the risen Christ, his life flows through us. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, I believe, is this, he's talking about union to Christ. The Holy Spirit joins the sinner to Jesus. And that's the law of the Holy Spirit who brings life through this union to Jesus Christ. When that happens, it sets you free from this law that condemns you, the law of sin and of death. So we can paraphrase it like this. We are no longer condemned because the Holy Spirit has united us to the risen Christ and given us his life, and that has set us free from the condemning power of the law. Because when we were united to Christ, Christ's righteousness was put to our account. So there we have Paul's teaching again on justification by faith. Now, let's move over to the second major heading, the propitiation of the Savior. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What was the law unable to do? Think about that. For what the law could not do, God did. Make us righteous. Yes, make us righteous. Why couldn't the law make us righteous? 
because of our flesh. He says here, weak as it was through the flesh. Now, when he talks about flesh, he's not talking about skin. He's talking about your corrupt human nature, your fallen human nature that you're born into this world. The law was unable to justify us. It was unable to declare us righteous. All the law can do is expose sin and condemn sin wherever it finds it. But that's as far as the law can go. In fact, this is exactly what Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. He says, we, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul is reiterating that same truth here in Romans 8, verse 3. The law could not justify us or declare us righteous. So God did that. Now, it wasn't the law's fault. There's nothing wrong with the law. The fault lay entirely with us. It was our flesh that was sinful and corrupt and desired things other than God's righteous and holy character and standards. Now, who is this Savior? Notice verse 3. The law could not save us, so God saved us. So there's a Savior involved, but who is he? Let's notice in verse 3. It says, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice that word, sending. Sending. A lot of times... We think that Jesus and the Father are, are a little bit in conflict because Jesus is this righteous, angry God, holy, righteous, and angry with sinners. And here we got sinners over here are rebellious. And so Jesus volunteers to step in and put himself forward to be a savior between these guilty, rebellious sinners and God, who's angry at their sin. But that's not what happened. Jesus didn't put himself forward. God put Jesus forward. It said God sent Jesus. So it is not true that Jesus is more loving towards sinners than God the Father is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see there, it's the love of God that prompted Jesus to come. And the Father is not more angry with sinners than Jesus is. They are both angry with sin, and they both love sinners equally, because they're both God. They both partake of the very same nature. So God sends this one. Now, who does he send? His own son. His own son. God the Father sent God the Son to redeem us. And then God the Father and God the Son together sent the Holy Spirit to apply the salvation that Jesus accomplished. So the eternal, uncreated Son of the living God is the Savior. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if the Word was God, that means that God became flesh and dwelt among us. God sent God. You could boil it down to that. God sent God to save us. And if you really look at it, God is the one that saves us from God. God's wrath is upon sinners. 
And so God comes to remove wrath, his own wrath, from sinners. And then he goes on to tell us that it was in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now Paul is really careful the way he words this. Paul does not say that he sent his own son in the likeness of flesh, because that would be incorrect. Why? Because Jesus didn't come in the likeness of flesh. He came in real flesh. In other words, Jesus was a real man. He was completely human, just like you and I are. There was a, a heresy going around in the first 300 years of the church called asceticism, and they believed that uh, Jesus wasn't a real man, that he just appeared like one. He, he looked like a man, but he wasn't a real man. No, the Bible teaches that there's real humanity involved. Jesus has a real human nature. It's not just the likeness of flesh. It's real flesh that Jesus came in. But notice he also doesn't say that he came in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now that protects us from another heresy, which is that Jesus was a sinner. And the whole Bible from beginning to end tells us that he was pure and spotless and free from all sin. God made him who what? Knew no sin to become sin for us. Christ died for sins once for all. The just, that means the righteous one, for the unrighteous ones. The just for the unjust. So Christ is perfectly sinless. And he is a real human being. His human nature is joined to a divine nature to make one individual person. Now, what did he accomplish? It says here, as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Let's take that first phrase. As an offering for sin. The word offering is a synonym for sacrifice. Like if you go to the Old Testament... When you look at the book of Leviticus, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you're going to read about different offerings. There's the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and there are many more. So the offerings of the Old Testament are sacrifices. But Jesus is the ultimate, perfect sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. That's what propitiation is. A sacrifice that turns away wrath. Christ came into this world to be that perfect, ultimate sacrifice that all of the other ones for hundreds of years have been pointing forward to. Hebrews 10.14 says, By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, it says, As an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God condemns sin in the flesh when Jesus died. What does that mean? God found sin guilty and then sentenced that sin to its just punishment. What does sin deserve, according to Scripture? Death. The wages of sin is death. That's the just penalty for sin. So God condemned it and he sentenced it to its just penalty. But if we in and of ourselves receive that that penalty, all of us would die, not just a physical death, but an eternal death, eternal separation from God. And so God himself steps in and takes the brunt of that penalty in his own body on the cross, bearing God's wrath against our sins, not his own, because he had none, took it 
absorbed it, bore it, and when he went into the tomb, left it there and rose triumphant over the grave and death and hell. So Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. The reason Jesus' death can remove my condemnation is because God condemned my sin and Christ bore the full penalty for it. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He already took it for me on my behalf. And so I'm left with no condemnation. Now that brings us to Paul's final major theme here, which is verse 4, and that's the sanctification of the saint. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice how he starts that verse. So that, what do those two little words tell you? Here comes the goal. He did this so that he could accomplish this. There's an end goal in view. God sent his son to die as an offering for sin, condemning sin in the flesh, so that, verse 4, could take place. Well, what's verse 4 about? It's about us fulfilling the requirements of the law. Now, I know there's the temptation to interpret verse 4 to mean so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us by Christ. And it's true that Jesus has fulfilled the requirements of the law for us, but it doesn't say for us. It says in us, doesn't it? And it also says this only happens when we walk, which means to live, according to the Spirit. So it's talking about our daily lives, walking, living according to the Spirit. When we live according to the Spirit, the requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. I believe here he is definitely talking about a sanctified, holy life. <coughs> it's the progressive putting to death of sin and the progressive bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, why would God make this his goal? No. He sends Jesus to die and make him an offering for sin and condemn sin in the flesh so that believers would fulfill the law of God in their daily lives. Why would God want that? Why would that be his goal? I think it's because when we fulfill the law in our lives, we are displaying God's character. We are bringing glory back to God. We are reflecting back to God something of his own righteous, holy character. And when God sees that, he's glorified. When others see that, God is glorified. It puts God on display. Remember, what? there's one reason God does everything he does, for his own glory. And that's why he's doing this in verse 4. And this isn't the only place in the Bible that teaches this. Yes, you know. Uh, also in the uh, Old Testament, all throughout the Bible, it says, so that they would be my people and I will be their God. Yes. Amen. Amen. So, Romans 8.29, same chapter, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Why did God predestine us? To become conformed to the image of his Son. That's his goal. Why did he want that? So that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants Christ to be exalted and lifted up as the firstborn and all these other brethren 
they, they, they're encircling him like the earth encircles the sun, looking to him, worshiping him as the firstborn. Or Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Why did God chose us or choose us before the foundation of the world? So that we would be holy and blameless. Same thing as Romans 8.29. He had a goal in mind in predestination. He had a goal in mind in the election. And that was our holiness, because our holiness glorifies God. Now, let's dig a little deeper We're here into Romans 8.4. It says, so the, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What does it mean to fulfill God's law? How do we as Christians fulfill God's law? Well, Romans 13 tells us, verses 8 through 10. Here we go. Romans 13 to 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You see that? He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, Romans 8, 4 says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How are we going to fulfill the requirement of the law? We are going to love our neighbor. Amen. That's how Paul would tell us. So, if we are not loving our neighbor, we're not fulfilling the law, and God is not getting as much glory from our lives as he otherwise could. That's how important it is that we love each other. And we're not only talking about loving believers, we're talking about loving our neighbor, which is anyone, even your enemy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what he's talking about, love. It boils down to love. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So according to that verse, how do we love our neighbor? Through faith. Faith works through love. In fact, he says in Galatians 5.16, uh, let me just read that. Galatians 5.16. You know That's not the verse I was looking for. <laughs> It's where he says, um, don't let, don't be controlled by the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's a rough paraphrase. But it's here in Galatians 5 somewhere. You find it, shout it out. 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in the Lord, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's the one right before that, verse 13. Yeah. You are called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Amen. How do we serve one another? How do we love one another? Uh, well, he tells us in 5, 6, it's through faith. Faith working through love. So that's where, that's where it starts from. A life of faith, working through love, serving other people. 
So how can we fulfill God's law? Well, this takes us back to Romans 8, 4, where Paul says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but they do walk according to the Spirit. God wants you to fulfill his law, which is to love others. And the only way you'll ever be able to do that is by living according to the Holy Spirit, according to this verse. So we have got to figure out how to do that. Paul doesn't spell it out here for us. He doesn't give us practical tips on what does that mean? How do you do it? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four quick, practical tips that I think are involved in walking by the Holy Spirit. Remember, and there's four words. Acknowledge, pray, trust, and act. Acknowledge. Acknowledge your helplessness. Jesus said in John 15, 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have to believe that. We have to really just tell the Lord, Okay, Lord, you, I believe you want me to do this. You want to fulfill the law. You want me to love this person. But I realize in myself I'm helpless to do it. And, and really confess that, believing that it's true. Two, pray. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. So you're faced with a situation, acknowledge your own helplessness, pray to God to give grace to you, to be able to do what you can't do in your flesh. Three, trust. Trust God in the moment. Believe his word. Believe his promise. Believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Believe that God's word is powerful in your life, that the Spirit will energize and equip and enable you to do this thing. And four, act. Now I put act last, because if you put it first, before you acknowledge, pray, and trust, it becomes a work of the flesh, and just a dead work. You're just in your own power trying to do something. But if you've acknowledged your helplessness, if you've prayed to God, if you've trusted his word, and then you act, you are acting in the power of the Spirit. You're walking now. You're living in the Spirit. You're relying on the Spirit who indwells you to live his life through you. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says in Philippians 2, 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, he gives them this exhortation. Work out your salvation. Act. Do. Action, right? But that's not the whole statement. <laughs> Verse 13 says, For, how are we able to do this, Paul? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. You need to believe that God is at work in you. And that's why you're going to act. That's why you're going to do this thing. That's why you're going to love this person. That's why you're going to put these petty grievances aside and you're going to serve this individual. Because God isn't working you. Now, you can just sit on your behind and say, okay, Lord, if you want me to do it, make me do it. Make me get up and do it. That's not the way sanctification works. There is a cooperation between you and God working together. God's already working in you, it says in verse 13. Now you work out your salvation. It's similar to what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Notice this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, all the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Do you see his point? I labored, and I labored hard, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was with me. So you don't have to have this conflict thinking, well, should I do this or should I not? If, if it's the will of God, as spelled out in his word, yes, God wants you to do it. But you can't just decide, I'm going to do this, and just hop up. and You need to do it in reliance upon the Spirit who indwells you. So acknowledge, pray, trust, and act. Let's draw this down to a conclusion. Are you in Christ Jesus? That is a super important question that you must figure out. You've got to decide if that is true about you. Are you in Christ? If it's true, then God has lifted the sentence of condemnation from you. He sets you free from the accusations and condemnation of the law and the penalty of the broken law. He's joined you to the risen Lord. You share Christ's life. Christ took your condemnation. He bore your curse. He absorbed your wrath. He took the due penalty for your sin. And if that's true, then what's God's goal for your life? That you would fulfill his law in your daily living. And his law can be summed up in love your neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Right? That's how Jesus summed up all the Old Testament. Now, how are we doing when it comes to loving God and loving neighbor? That's, I mean, really, Christ, the Christian life is pretty simple. Love. Love. Love God and love people. Sum everything up under that. That's what it all boils down to. So if you were born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has given you life. And we need to learn how to rely upon and depend upon the Spirit of God to live a life of love. We need to learn to walk in step with the Spirit. And that means prayer, faith, reliance. Remember, that's what Paul told us in Romans 7, 4. We have been joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. We will never bear fruit for God until we are in this vital union with Christ. And when we're in union with Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who engenders this fruit. That's what he means in verse 6. We serve a newness of the Spirit, not an oldness of the letter. So I just want to exhort you to go home with this ringing in your ears. Acknowledge your helplessness. Pray for grace. Trust God's word. And then act upon what he's told you to do in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we stand under the word of God today. We want it to have its work in our life. We are so grateful that we have a Savior who's delivered us from condemnation, Lord. Set us free from the law of sin and death. That he condemns sin in the flesh. Lord, thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And we pray now that we might glorify you, Lord, by fulfilling the righteous requirements of your law. Lord, we confess our selfishness to you today. And that gets in the way of, of loving our neighbors so often. Please forgive us and help us, Lord. We pray that you would break this selfish pattern in our lives. 
And Lord, that we would live to serve others through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.